Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Legal Trends podcast by Hannes Snellman. In this first season, we discuss international litigation trends with prominent lawyers from around the world and apply our Nordic perspective to them. What are the current litigation trends in the world? Will they reach the Nordics anytime soon, or are they already here? My name is Anna Maria Tamminen. I'm a partner in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Nelman. And I am Helen Lehto, managing associate in the dispute resolution team at Hannes Nelman. In this episode, we discuss climate change litigation. And for this discussion, we are very honored to have with us today Friek Vermulen of Nauda Dutil in Amsterdam. Friek is a partner in Nauta Dutil's litigation and arbitration department and head of the Supreme Court litigation team. Friek is particularly interested in cases with cross-border, international public law aspects and human rights aspects and is very active in the field of climate change litigation. Welcome to our podcast, Friek. Thank you. Very honored to be here. And Frick will be joined today by one of our colleagues, Klaus Metsasimola, who is a specialist partner at Hannes Nelman's Helsinki office and an expert on environmental law. Klaus will comment upon similar trends through what he sees in his practice here in the Nordics. Hello, Klaus, and welcome. Hello. Nice to be here. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. So what is commonly referred to as climate change litigation can take on a few different forms. It can be a not-for-profit organization, or it can be private individuals suing a state for failing to comply with international agreements, such as the Paris Agreement, or it can be an NGO going after a company for failing to reduce emissions and a lot of other things as well. So Freer, given that the Urgenda case where you acted on behalf of the claimants against the Netherlands and which the Dutch Supreme Court ruled on in December 2019 was the landmark case as far as these issues go, could you give us an overview on the case, how it came about and what it ultimately resulted in? Well, this uh, gender gas or gender gas started uh, 2012, so a long time ago already. It was aimed at getting a court order to the effect that the Dutch government should decrease its uh, carbon dioxide emissions uh, from the Dutch uh, territory by 2020 with either 45% or the lower end, the minimum end was 25%. And that was a novel litigation it was very far-reaching and actually there was no one i think in the Netherlands, or hardly anyone in the netherlands who who believed that this litigation this collective litigation by a ngo would succeed at the time in the netherlands what is interesting perhaps is that that at the time i saw that the litigation was announced it was a draft writ of summons which was uh, publicly available and at the time i uh, looked at the website the day this was announced the draft And I saw that it was backed by, I think, about 40 climate scientists and other scientists. And the quality was really impressive. Uh, And so I called the same day as a sort of ambulance chasing lawyer. (laughs) And I said, well... Well done. (laughs) Yeah. And I I told the the then lawyer that it might very well uh, go up to the Supreme Court because I'm a Supreme Court lawyer primarily. And what we do is also to give guidance in the factual instances up to the Supreme Court and then handle the case before the Supreme Court. And then he told me, well, that's a little bit premature now. So uh, thank you, but no thanks. So I was not involved at the time. But then very spectacularly in 2015, the Hague Court ruled that the state should indeed lower the uh, CO2 emissions uh, uh, with 25% per 2020, which was really spectacular. It was based on 
Dutch uh, tort law, actually. We can dive into details uh, later during this uh, session. Uh, but it was truly spectacular. In the meantime, there was more like scientific debate and, and there was a little bit more backing for that. So, But it was completely novel at the time. There was no president at all, not on the global level even. Then we became involved to guide Urganda uh, throughout the appeal in view of future, then future uh, Supreme Court proceedings. And we stressed actually that it might be viable to raise a human rights argument before the Court of Appeal. We did so based on the European Convention of Human Rights, Articles 2 and 8, so the right to life, the right to, um, to family life. And to our surprise, actually, the Court of Appeal granted the claim, so the same claim, 25% reduction by 2020, on the human rights ground, which was, again, completely novel at the time. And then we took the case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court held that the Dutch state has a positive duty, duty of care, positive obligation based on the European Convention of Human Rights to protect the life of the Dutch citizens, which are affected uh, by not taking measures against climate change, which is very grave and which is, uh, is likely to already affect current inhabitants of the Netherlands in the course of this uh, century, so during their life, very gravely. And the state should take proportionate and reasonable measures to counter that. And that, well, this was very novel on the level of the European Convention of Human Rights. There was a lot of case law about more uh, conventional environmental cases, but to hold that a state is liable to do its part, as the Supreme Court hold, held, to counter the grave consequences of climate change was very new. And it was actually also based on the broader framework of international law and international soft law. So both the UN Framework Treaty from 92 and subsequent case law and foreign case law, but also soft laws from the United Nations, but also in, in Europe, that actually uh, led the Supreme Court to hold that Whereas there's a margin of uncertainty where the law stands now under the European Convention, we're comfortable that at this stage, looking at this normative development, there's common ground to interpret the European Convention to the effect that there is such a positive obligation to mitigate climate change risks. So that's the most important decision. And then the second very important topic was, of course, what is the position of a judge in the Netherlands in this kind of matters, as they are heavily also debated, of course, in the political domain. And a lot of people in the Netherlands that uh, that held at the time and still hold that it is, well, that you should be careful not to step into the political area too much as a judge. Well, congratulations on obtaining the verdict. Obviously, the issue is grave and therefore congratulations may be the wrong word here, but um, at least you're getting action in place. And now, as you explain, the verdict was handed down in December 2019 in that case. Um, and Frederick, you've been watching this space closely. How would you say that climate change litigation has evolved since then? What, what other types of cases have you seen in the past years? Well, very spectacularly, actually. What we've seen is uh, litigation um, being conducted in countries like South Korea with the same kind of arguments in France in Germany, in Ireland, in Great Britain also, in Norway. It did not succeed, I believe, in, in Norway. We have some little bit different grounds, but Ireland did succeed. And very spectacularly, 
in both Germany and in France in administrative proceedings and in Germany for the, the Dutch Constitutional Court. There is a little bit of a different angle to the effect that the claim was targeting to having the government explain and to be transparent how it would meet its own targets, its own climate targets in its policies. So these are the most particular last developments, I think, up till the very recent uh, landmark judgment of the court in The Hague in the Netherlands against Royal Dutch uh, Shell. So the first, I think, in which a, a corporate in this case, a fossil fuel company, one of the largest in the world, has been held responsible for climate change, for uh, its own emissions, but also the emissions of its customers to a certain extent, and has been ordered by the courts to reduce its uh, C2 levels, its scope one, two, and three emissions by 2030 with 45%, which is extremely spectacular. And and that's a very interesting development because I think that's the question that has been on everyone's mind when the first decision started coming in is how long will it take for similar decisions to be in place for corporates. But uh, now we know. And I understand you've also seen a, a bit of investment arbitration cases in the Netherlands after the Urhenda case was handed down. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. The first two claims under bilateral investment treaty or multilateral investment treaty because it's the energy charter treaty uh, have been launched by RWE and uh, Uniper because of the uh, foreclosure of uh, coal fire plants in the Netherlands as a direct result actually of the uh, agenda decision of the Supreme Court because it had to be done and the state could have chosen several measures but did not do so and it did not step up so there were less possibilities to meet the uh, reduction requirements at the time. Well, it's certainly a fascinating field. And, and the question becomes, how will we see it in the Nordics? And have we already seen it in the Nordics? And I'm going to put that question to Klaus. Um, when you work with environmental law here in Finland and in the Nordics more generally, have you seen sort of the repercussions of this here already? As such, I would say that this climate change discussion, it's constantly ongoing it's everywhere and what has been maybe surprising for me is that the change we have faced in the recent years so when i have been practicing environmental law it has been maybe quite customary view that uh, environmental law is, is a certain narrow field of legal trends in in some parts but now it's not just environmental lawyers but I would say that even the top management of the companies and the general councils, they are very familiar with the climate change issues. They can easily drop names of the relevant laws and international agreements and certain dates and what are the requirements. And they really have put effort understanding these, what are the corporate's vision and what's their mission against the climate change. So I would say that it's everywhere. As an environmental lawyer, we have been traditionally in contact with climate change-related regulations for a long time. So for us, I would say that it's not so a new phenomenon. So we have a long time having this emission trading laws and how they affect to the companies then product side as a ban of certain substances that are causing 
harmful environmental and climate change impacts. Then we, of course, are familiar with the requirements related to development of the techniques and how they are converted into legal requirements like best available technique and, and how to interpret that concept. Then we have maybe new approaches that are related to, for example, city planning. So we have certain requirements that due to climate change, where can you actually construct cities so you can't go too low shore areas. The traditional view has been that these climate change requirements, they are normally allocated to the member states or to the states due to agreements or international agreements. But now we are seeing that they are directly affecting also the private business and the companies. And that has been, based on my view, there has been a lot of progress in the recent years. So you're already seeing these trends in sort of decisions being made within private businesses and so forth. And then if you were to speculate about how we will see this trend in the Nordics when it does morph into sort of concrete claims, litigation perhaps, what do you think that's going to take the form of? Is it going to be an NGO, a not-for-profit organization targeting an individual company? How do you think this is going to sort of start to show up? That's also a very good question. So we are lacking the hands-on experience that how that will go but a couple of years there has been this kind of academic discussion amongst the university people that what is the current legislation and how this kind of court cases could be brought in the Finnish court system or in the Nordic environment and there maybe the traditional view has been that can we use or develop our existing administrative court proceedings to maybe to manage these court cases? But it's a good question because traditionally these emissions or climate change, they have been assessed from a certain facility in a certain site and what kind of environmental impacts that certain facility has on its nearby areas. And the approach has been how to control emissions from a certain point source, so a certain factory or facility. But now in regard to climate change, we are going home, having this total paradigm shift. So we are having legally binding international agreements that are setting obligation to the states. And then there are normally certain legally binding environmental quality legislation, and then that is converted into legally binding regional requirements, and those will then have also the direct effect to the private business and companies and how they can operate their facilities in a certain place. And I think, Klaus, here, one point that we may reflect upon is that the Nordics generally tend to be the kind of place where we have a lot of expectations on our authorities and expect them to do the job for us often. But if you were to speculate, I mean, with regard to the the litigation trend we've been discussing with Freyk, would you see that that is something that is bound to hit our shores at some point? Do you think that there are indications out there that an NGO would start targeting individual companies or, say, the state of Finland for inaction of some sort? Based on the development 
abroad, I would say that it will come at some day. So we are definitely having some day, some NGO will sue some companies operating also in Finland. So both the companies need to be prepared and then the judges need to be prepared for the argument regarding their political aspects. So now we know. <laughs> yeah. So looking more generally at climate change litigation cases and the procedural issues which arise, um, there seems to be a lot of those, but maybe sort of two would stand out. One is the issue of standing, which of course means essentially who's got the right to bring a claim against the state or against the company. And then another is the issue of whether the claim is admissible before a particular court. Uh, Freyark, what would you say are the decisive factors here when looking at who has failed in bringing claims and who has succeeded? I think for the Netherlands, what's very important, which is also reflected in the Supreme Court's judgment in the Urgenda case, but also in the recent Shell case, is that we have a very uh, favorable, accessible class action system in the Netherlands. So it is NGOs can bring place to courts on behalf of a very large amount of people. And then they can file lawsuits on behalf of those people. And they can actually invoke their rights, so their human rights in those proceedings. Which is very important, of course, because what we've seen in other countries, we've seen that in the RWE case or the case against RWE in Germany, which was lost, I think, about six or seven or maybe eight years ago by a Peruvian farmer who alleged that uh, that he and his family suffers damages by the CO2 emissions of RWE. It's, of course, very hard to establish causality and that by specifically RWE's emissions, his human rights or other interests are damaged. So that is very, very difficult on an individual basis. So some form of collective action, I think, is necessary. And that's, I think, a condition sine qua non for the success of the case in the Netherlands. And it's also on a larger scale. There's now two cases pending before the European Court of Human Rights about climate change. These are very important cases. But the the main question, the preliminary question now in the admissibility phase of the, in those two cases and in other cases that will follow, I know that uh, that one or two cases will follow shortly, is of course the, the, the question whether or not someone who's living in Portugal and alleges that 33 states of the Council of Europe fail in their duties to mitigate climate change whether they have victim status under Article 34, I believe, of the European Convention of Human Rights. So it is a very important question. We see that also in the United States in past litigation. But so the recipe for success uh, probably would be that the national procedural law, if it comes to civil litigation, I'm a civil law expert, would permit and broadly permit to collectify more or less the, uh, the bundling of private interests. And there, I think the reflective point for the Nordics is that we don't have a collective claim system in place. And and I think that's one of the interesting developments to see is whether there's going to be room for that. Yeah, exactly. It surely remains to be seen. But you mentioned also these other countries, um, South Korea, France, Ireland, and so forth. Some have succeeded and some have not. Um, do you happen to know sort of how their legislation differs on that point? Well, no, in France, there is a, at least in administrative cases, there's a very broad possibility to litigate on behalf of a collective. For instance, in France, I think uh, the uh, one of the most important climate change litigation is backed by two million 
French inhabitants. And then, you, of course, it is the questions of admissibility and causality will become less important. I don't know exactly how that uh, is in Germany and in Ireland, but it did not meet any obstacles there. Klaus and Freck, we've heard words such as spectacularly, and, and we've heard that from Klaus that, that you know that this is coming to Finland as well. But where would you both see that this climate change litigation trend is headed in the future? And, and what types of cases would you expect to see in, in the first instance? Klaus, if you go first, what thoughts on the subject? It's interesting to see because I, I think, well, as an environmental lawyer, it's interesting to see that how these climate change obligations will be allocated between the states and the core corporate business. So if I understood correct, so in, in this Shell case that was, uh, and this is based on, on my reading today's newspaper here in Helsinki, so it was a uh, held by the court that some of the grounds for that verdict was that Shell has by itself announced certain environmental policies and measures that they are going to take. And that was brought up in the case that they have violated their own voluntary commitments. For me, it's interesting phenomenon to see that kind of trend that will it be so that this kind of corporate business clients' own strategies and visions. And, and because we, we also have these, uh, in Finland, you can see this, is it one corporate that gives this commitment that they are going to be fossil-free within one generation. And this kind of public announcement or advertising comes, I would say, almost every day. So is it so that NGOs or or Maybe certain customers of those companies can then claim that or measure somehow and brought that. And then, of course, that how will these climate change international laws and then national laws are progressing? So, and, and setting that framework for this kind of climate litigation, it will be very interesting to see. Watching the space. And Freyak, what would you say from your perspective? Where do you see this going? Well, if it's about um, governments, I think uh, there's two developments which are very interesting, which you might want to follow. One is uh, what I mentioned is the two pending cases for the European Court of Human Rights and one other and perhaps two other are, will be joining. These are fast tracks, which is exceptional by the European Court of Human Rights. So there is going to happen something in those cases, I expect. So that might yield something at the end of the year because they are on fast track. And the other is still waiting to happen, but people have been thinking about it for, I think, eight years now. That is to request the General Assembly of the United Nations, and I expect that to, to happen in the September session next year, to request an advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice as to the obligations of states under international public law. Those are, I think, the most uh, relevant developments we might expect as to governments. As to corporates, well, the Shell case will um, inevitably lead to other attempts against fossil fuel companies in the Netherlands, but also outside the Netherlands. It will probably lead to more like targeting 
the policy of an enterprise, of a corporation. There might be other measures you can take. For instance, in the United States, we've seen this week, of course, the appointment of two members of NGOs, I believe, in the board of ExxonMobil. And I get that from Klaus, also a Finnish board member. So very good for you. But that's, of course, very important because you have different systems and different possibilities in different jurisdictions. In some jurisdictions, it will be more civil law and others it will be more administrative law and others will be corporate law. So it, it might be very different there. But one is very important, and that is that the European Union and the European Central Bank seek leverage from financial institutions. And I have a more or less of background active for clients in the financial markets so or financial institutions, banks, insurance, etc. And they have been very, very busy in the Netherlands over the last couple of years to meet climate change mitigation expectations from the supervisory bodies, but increasingly also from NGOs in, for instance, proceedings before the uh, Dutch uh, contact point under the guidelines. We will see, I think, uh, a lot of new attempts against financial institutions because they, well, if you have a credit portfolio of, of 600 billion, there's something to be gained, of course, uh, as an NGO. Yes, I think this is where the country has taken pride. As we are nearing the end of the podcast, we would like to ask you some more lighthearted questions, which we are asking all of our guests. So first of all, we just talked about um, the climate change litigation trend and, and where that is headed. But is there any other interesting litigation development which you've either seen in the last few years or which you anticipate to be seeing more of in the future? Would Klaus like to go first? Well, this comes maybe purely from Nordic perspective. So we have been very active in the field of onshore wind farm development. And we have had a vast number of that kind of administrative court proceedings. But now it seems that the offshore wind farms are coming also into the Finnish market. And we expect that there will be some very interesting legal trends relating to having that sea environment. So looking forward to those. Thanks for that. We will be watching this space and we'll come back to you for comments when we get there. For sure. <laughs> what about Frank? Well, what we see is, uh, for instance, is uh, international, not only climate litigation, but uh, generally environmental litigation against corporates. They seek jurisdiction from the Dutch courts, but it has nothing to do actually with uh, with the Netherlands. So like Brazilian and claims relating to uh, events that happened in Africa. So also against the road that Shell actually is one. So that will gain track, I think. And, and another very important one, which is a little bit intertwined with the first one, I think is the broader type of litigation targeting corporates as to human rights violations of their contractors or, or other companies in the value chain on the basis of international soft law. Because one of the most important elements actually in the Shell judgment, which was rendered on Wednesday, is that the, the UN guiding principles heavily influence the extent of a duty of care of a corporate. And, and we might see that also outside the realm of environmental law, but also other type of human rights violations. 
So we'll have everyone have a, a close look at at the soft law instruments that that you mentioned, Frederick, um, and keep an eye on those. Yeah. Um, then to a even more lighthearted topic, we ask all of our guests, what's the most interesting thing that you know about the Nordics? And I'll put that one to Freak first. Well, of course, uh, overwhelming nature in the first place. Very jealous about uh, that, actually. Of course, it's a personal question. What's interesting for me is perhaps not, not so interesting for others, but that is classical music, actually, and especially Finnish composers. I've been, well... A fan of Sibelius, especially, and especially his violin concerto. You can see behind me, but not the listeners, but you can stand it. So I'm a violinist. I, I would not try the violin concerto of Sibelius, but I am very happy to still to listen to after 30 years or so. Well, we'll be happy to invite you for a concert if you ever make it to the Nordics. <laughs> and Klaus, what, what would you say as a Finn? All the Nordic countries, we are sport-loving countries, so at this time of the year I would refer to ongoing ice hockey world championships where Nordic teams are competing, of course, with other teams, but especially between each other. So it's it's nice to, when you have this Nordic course. So at this time of the year, they always start with a discussion about hockey. Yeah, I was on a call with two members of the arbitral tribunal and uh, both of the others were Swedes and the chairman started. So we both lost, so we can get past yeah. this topic <laughs> and move on to the subject matter discussion. So what would be the funniest moment you've had in a courtroom or a hearing or even a meeting? Uh, what would you say, Frerik? Probably that that would be something which occurs a long time ago when I was an intern in a previous law firm. And uh, we had a meeting about a problem with the air conditioning system in army vehicles, tanks, which were operated by Middle Eastern country. And we had a meeting, I was with my boss at the time, and we were ordered to be somewhere in Amsterdam. And after 10 or 15 minutes, our guests decided that it was a little bit of a state secret to talk about that in a general generally, uh, available or accessible hotel. So I had to get back and me as an intern had to take the train. But my boss was positioned between the, the three colonels heavily moustached from the Middle Eastern country <laughs> to go back to the hex. So I was not <laughs> too disappointed to take the train at the time. <laughs> it's fantastic that that occurs to him sort of mid-hearing. Oh, wait, maybe I should not be talking about these things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so close. what's the funniest moment you've had? Finnish lawyers know that we have certain environmental courts so we have this kind of land court system, and this also goes or dates back to when I was starting my career. So in my first court case, no one told me that, that the court will, after that court day session, they will take a site visit. So I went to the <laughs> forest area with my black suit when, and uh, with shoes that so cross-country friendly and, and everyone else was prepared for that and I think it was quite a funny moment for everyone <laughs> but me so so that's how you learn to bring your rubber boots every time you go to land court yeah, yeah. well thank you gentlemen for your insight and foresight and for joining us for this episode it's been a pleasure thank you it's a pleasure for me yes thank you We hope you have enjoyed this episode. We will be back soon with more. 
In the meantime, we would love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode or wish to continue the discussion online, please follow our LinkedIn profile or other Hannes Nelman social media channels.